Welcome to the Ion Ryan Show, a satellite orbiting the worlds of tech, toys, pro wrestling, and pop culture. Here is your host, Ion Ryan. Hola, amigos, and welcome to episode three of the Ion Ryan Show as a member of the WePod Squad. Uh, before we get started here, I really want to give a shout out to the two other shows on this network. Uh, the guy that I split Tuesdays with is Sean. We go every other Tuesday in perpetuity. <laughs> he hosts MRC Tech Presents The Last Podcast, and he tackles everything relating to Star Wars. He does a truly fantastic job with a truly fantastic franchise, and he tackles every format. He talks about books. He talks about, uh, I really, I can't wait to get him talking about toys. <laughs> That's going to be the best. Uh, but he talks about the movies. He talks about the trailers. Uh, he's really just getting started. He's finding his groove. I absolutely love it. I'm a huge fan of Star Wars, and uh, that makes me a big fan of everything that Sean is doing right now with the MRC Tech Presents The Last Podcast. Now, if you want to follow along with him, which I suggest you do, I think you should go ahead and follow his Instagram, which is MRC Tech underscore talks underscore The Last Podcast. So he comes out every other Tuesday. I come out the Tuesday opposite of that. So uh, give him a follow, shoot him a DM, maybe he'll feature your question on his show. Uh, as I said, I love Star Wars and I love what Sean is doing with it. In a lot of ways, after The Last Jedi, I was pretty bummed out about Star Wars. And uh, to hear somebody that's so passionate and knowledgeable talk about it, it really has kind of re-peaked my interest in the franchise. Uh, I really blame him for my recent obsession with Star Wars and Star Wars toys. <laughs> and then the other show as a member of the WePod squad is of course really the flagship of this network, which is We Podcast and We Know Things. And that is hosted by Greg and Sam. Those guys tackle everything related to pop culture, movies, TV, music, comics, video games. If you can watch it or play it or read it and it's got a following these guys know all about it. They talk all about it. Their shows are awesome for the morning and evening commute. I love a show that can get me to work and home from work, and maybe even a little bit more, depending on how excited they are about the topic they're talking about. So uh, you can follow along on their adventure on Instagram at We Podcast and We Know Things. They record their show every Thursday, and it comes out every uh Late Thursday night, early Friday morning. Definitely check on Fridays. And they're doing some fantastic things. They've been doing so for almost 150 episodes now. And I'm so grateful to be a part of their WePod Squad uh, podcasting network that we put together here. So as we continue along the Ion Ryan show, I'm going to kind of introduce a new feature here. And I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to call it the three count. And it's going to be three different topics that I talk about for 30 seconds to five minutes each. Who knows, right? I, it depends how excited and interested I am and really what needs to be said. So the idea behind three count is I'm going to grab three things that are kind of happening in my life or happening in pop culture, or happening in our collective lives, and uh, just talk a little bit about it. So uh, without further ado, uh, I will have a cool intro when I'm back in two weeks, but for now, you just have to you just have to deal with my bootleg intro, and it's going to go something like this. <clears throat> this is the Ion Ryan three count. 
So first up in our three count is Avengers Endgame. Now I talked at length in episode two about how Avengers is going to beat Avatar at the worldwide box office. And I made a little bit of a prediction. And don't you know about 24 hours later, the prediction became a reality. They've re-released Avengers Endgame, this time with seven minutes of new footage. Now, uh, there's a good chance that maybe you have already seen it or you looked up uh, online to see what it was, to see if it was worth it. I am a massive, massive anti-spoiler guy. I don't even watch trailers of movies sometimes because I'm so darn excited and I don't want anything spoiled for me. So I have not gotten a chance to go see the Avengers re-release yet, but I will. After I see Spider-Man, which I'm seeing at uh, midnight on Monday, so I'm going to see one of the first showings here in America. And uh, yeah, I really look forward to seeing that. Now, what's interesting is through weekend number one, they added another $5 million here in the States, uh, which actually still puts them about $20 million behind Avatar. I believe it's uh, like $2.8 billion, $860 million versus $2.8 billion. Yeah, whatever the difference is, I'm really horrible at math. There's about a $20 million difference between the two right now. So I think it's going to get a bump from Spider-Man. I think some people are going to see Spider-Man, and maybe there's a storyline or something in there that piques their interest and says, okay, we're going to go back and go see Endgame one last time on the big screen because, you know, spoiler alert, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we miss Tony Stark or whatever. So uh, Avengers is continuing on that quest to take down Avatar. It will not, I repeat, it will not be the first movie to ever make $3 billion. Uh, we're still waiting for that. And as Sean over at MRC Talk uh, can attest to, maybe we're going to see it with Star Wars Episode Nine. Depends uh, if the word of mouth can really get going for that movie. But Yes, no movie to date has made $3 billion, and it doesn't look like Avengers Endgame is is really going to come anywhere close to that, which is shocking. I, I really pegged that as being the first movie to ever make $3 billion globally. But, uh, yeah, record, they'll still, you know, people are still going to chase that high watermark of $3 billion, but it does look like Avengers is going to go ahead and get its record. It's just a matter of if it will happen this time next week or if we're going to have to wait 10 days or two weeks. But uh, I wish Avengers the best of luck. For some reason, I have this irrational, irrational commitment to taking down Avatar. I never saw Avatar. I, uh, I won't get into it. Uh, but there's actually an interesting Avatar Spider-Man connection that we're going to get into uh, in the second half of this podcast. So number two is Fighter Fest, AEW's Fighter Fest. If you follow me on Instagram or you follow the website ionryan.com, you saw my article about how to watch AEW's Fighter Fest for free. You also saw my match preview and what I was expecting from each match. Uh, you also saw my analysis of how AEW is growing at an exponential rate in comparison to all of its competitors that are not WWE. And uh, yeah, Fighter Fest was on Saturday night, and they did a relatively nice job. Uh, what they did was they put the pre-show on YouTube and Bleacher Report Live. It seems like AEW is going to work a lot with Bleacher Report. Bleacher Report is owned by TNT and Turner, uh, which is the network that they're going to be broadcasting on come this fall. And hey, my experience streaming on Bleacher Report Live, I streamed it on my iPad Pro, 
and uh, it worked flawlessly. So if you want to see how you can see AEW for free, uh, AEW Fighter Fest for free, uh, you can actually go to the website, ionryan.com, click on a picture, uh, you'll see it. It says Fighter Fest. You click on that, it will tell you how you can watch it for free on your smart TV, on your tablet, on your phone, on your laptop, connecting it to your television. And uh, yeah, what you'll see on Bleacher Report is the actual show, the main show. They did do a one-hour pre-show, which was broadcast on YouTube and Bleacher Report. And uh, I'm going to be honest with you. <clears throat> it wasn't very good. The pre-show was not very good. They did one hour of trying to get some butts in the seats, uh, the proverbial butts in the seats, really the eyes on the screen. And they spent the first half hour doing a fantastic job telling AEW story, telling the story of the professional wrestlers in the ring. Uh, the whole idea of Fighter Fest was it was a rib on the whole Fire Festival, that disastrous music festival that spawned two documentaries uh, through the elite of really all elite wrestling's YouTube channel, one of which is Being the Elite, a weekly television program which uh, is part documentary, part scripted comedy and stories. Um, the whole idea was that Kenny Omega, one of the members of the elite, started to watch the fire. F- <laughs> I'm sorry, started to watch the fire festival. I'm laughing a little bit here because it's it's funnier in retrospect. He started to watch the documentaries about fire festival, and he's like, "This is awesome. We got to do something just like this." And he and he doesn't. On the show, he doesn't finish the documentaries, so he doesn't know how much of a disaster it was. Uh, So they actually had a lot of fun with that on Saturday on Twitter. A lot of the wrestlers were quote-unquote complaining. Uh, Kenny Omega, the event organizer, found out that the band that he booked had left. Uh, Then they name-dropped the band, and they said, oh, it's Blink-182. And I guess word got back to Blink, and they tweeted out, they're like, Dude, Kenny, the food was horrible. And it just was really hilarious that they all played along. And And I love that in wrestling when we can have a little bit of fun and uh, live in this little bit of a fantasy world. So the first half hour of the pre-show was excellent. Made me laugh, told great stories. Second half hour, uh, AEW hit a little bit of a bump. And I think what that is is... They have this show being the elite, and they have their Twitter presence, and they have their road to Fighter Fest, and they have their road to Double or Nothing, and Road to All Out, all these different YouTube shows, which is a really groundbreaking way to tell stories. Uh, but Tony Khan, the owner of AEW, his goal is to bring back like to bring back like the lapsed wrestling fan, right? It's like the heyday of 10 million people watching on a Monday night when Stone Cold Steve Austin and NWO and WCW were going at it. Uh, He wants to bring back those people. Now, it's really tough because on one hand, they're trying to... They're trying to reward the loyal and hardcore viewer like myself, the one who gets all the jokes that come from being the elite, the inside jokes, the little things that they drop. Uh, But by the same token, what they're doing is they're raising the point of entry. And it's a little bit harder for people that don't watch wrestling or especially don't watch being the elite or the documentaries leading up to the show it's a little bit harder for them to enjoy it. At least that's what happened in the pre-show. They did this whole thing with the librarians, which is like a gimmick in wrestling where it's a man and a woman, they're librarians, and it's intentionally kind of hokey. It's supposed to be funny. It's supposed to be tongue-in-cheek. But there's a good chance if you turn that on and you saw that the whole gimmick was 
that there's librarians telling you to shush. I don't know if that's going to resonate with you. Uh, and then the match they had with the female librarian um, who used to be Blue Pants in NXT, and her name now is, I believe, uh, Leva Bates, uh, versus the debuting Allie, who used to be Cherry Bomb on the Indies. Uh, that match was kind of just okay. Uh, Allie coming out didn't really set the crowd on fire. The crowd for Fighter Festival was a little bit strange, and the fact that it was partially it was intrinsically linked with a gaming festival a gaming convention with a company called CEO and um i don't know if they knew who ally was it didn't really pop the crowd so the crowd was kind of dead through all of that i actually had a friend text me be like this is horrible and i'm like just wait just wait just wait then they finished up the pre-show with a match uh it was the owner of CEO gaming a non-wrestler taking on a wrestler and it was a whole comedy thing. And it just, it wasn't a great representation of what AEW is going to be. A lot of it, again, was kind of inside jokes for the benefit of the hardcore audience or the live audience that's into video games. Uh, But once the show got underway, they did a fantastic job. They had six matches on the main show. It was uh, Christopher Daniels versus Chima. Those two guys have a combined age of 90 years old, and I'm not even saying that to knock them. I'm just saying that uh, they're old. But they don't look old, but they've been doing it for a long time. They know how to tell a great story, and they, they did a nice job kicking off the AEW uh, the AEW main show. Uh, the next show, the next match was a three-way uh, which featured a very large woman named Nyla Rose versus two smaller women, uh, two Japanese wrestlers. Uh, one, her name is, I believe, Riho, R-I-H-O. And then the other young lady, she's charismatic. She got the crowd behind her. And goodness gracious, I forget her name. Uh, I would look it up, but uh, I'm on a little bit of a deadline here, so I want to keep rolling with the podcast. But listen, that was actually one of the best three-way dances I've ever seen. Um, when it comes to women, uh, women's wrestling, because there's this there's this thing where uh, the two young ladies from Japan weigh like 80 pounds and they're like five feet tall and they're fighting a woman who weighs 200 and some pounds. And they did a really good job of telling this story where when um, when she was being a threat, when Nyla Rose was being a threat, those two would team up and take her down, and then they would immediately turn their attention towards one another. And I absolutely love that method of storytelling. Um, Next up on the card, the third match on the card was a fatal four-way, and that was Adam Page, who was the number one contender for the AEW title. He'll be taking on Chris Jericho at All Out at the end of August. And um, one of them will be the first AEW champion. But on his road to All Out, he had a four-way match with uh, MJF, who, how do I put this in the nicest possible way? He's like The Miz, but better. Like, he basically has The Miz's gimmick, kind of, uh, where he's pompous and he's a know-it-all and he's a show-off and he is, uh, no bones about it, a total jerk. (laughs) And uh, also in that match was uh, Jimmy Havoc, who's a hardcore guy from overseas, I believe the UK. He's 35 years old. He's not a spring chicken, but I love that he's getting an opportunity out here in front of the North American crowd. And then the fourth participant was Jungle Boy, uh, who came to the ring on the shoulders of a very large man uh, who goes by the name Luchasaurus. But Jungle Boy is actually Luke Perry from uh, 90210, who unfortunately recently passed away. Um he uh sorry that was a text message um 
He, uh, they, they, all four of the guys had a great showing. I don't think it was the best match on the card, and it probably should have been. Um, but they're all going to find their footing. I, I think we we got a nice look at what AEW's mid card is going to be. And then the final three matches. If you really want to, um, if you really want to get a taste of AEW, and you're a little bit limited on time, you can actually go to Bleacher Report Live and uh, go exactly one hour into the show. One hour into the show is when the final three matches start. And the first of those three matches is to me the match of the night which is Cody Rhodes, the executive vice president of AEW, versus the debuting Darby Allin. Uh, now, I had the good fortune about two years ago of going down to an Evolve show to work with Gabe Sapolsky. Uh, so Gabe is the owner and writer of Evolve. He uh, was really one of the creators of Ring of Honor. He worked a little bit in ECW, learned a little bit from Paul Heyman. So he's a little bit of an icon, really, in the world of professional wrestling. He works a little bit now with NXT. And uh, I got an opportunity to talk with Gabe, and he did nothing but sing Darby Allen's praises. He said, this dude is is exceptionally good. And I'm so happy that Darby's getting an opportunity. Him and Cody truly tore down the house. And I kind of laughed to myself because Cody Rhodes is a guy that I'm not particularly taken by his wrestling style. There's no move that he does in the ring that, in my opinion, sets the world on fire. But his ability to tell a story is borderline unparalleled. Uh, you figure at All In, AEW's first unofficial show last September, he told one of the most enjoyable. He told one of the most enjoyable stories in wrestling uh, when he fought Nick Aldis, the NWA champion. That's a t- that's a title that his father held. He really wanted to win it. And just the build-up to the match, if you can seek it out, look up Cody Rhodes and Nick Aldis, watch it from the beginning, listen to the crowd. I was in that crowd, and people were like crying tears of joy at the end. That's how good it was. That's how good the story was. And again, they did that without any insane wrestling moves. Um, and like I said, I say I say that with all due respect to Cody. I think he is a fantastic performer. I'm just not particularly taken by his moveset. But yet, what him and Darby Allen did was fantastic. And um, similar to what he did with his brother Dustin, where they didn't have uh, the ultimate barn burner of a match, but they told a story and they delivered us from point A to point B and everything was different afterwards. And that's all you can really ask for when you're going to dedicate a couple hours of your life to watching wrestling is is the wrestling world and the stories now different because of that match that just happened. And you better believe it. And the story of that match is Darby Allen is a star. That man is going to compete for the AEW title someday. And I'm going to love it when he wins it. Uh, He's got everything. He's got a fantastic look. He's got the athleticism. He's great at cutting promos. Uh, You got to watch that match. If you're only going to watch one match from fighter festival, that is the one. Uh, that match was followed by <laughs> a six-man tag, and it was the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega, the three BFFs, the original members of the Elite, uh, and they were taking on really their their nemesis, uh, the Lucha Brothers, who are real-life brothers, and they had brought a guy with them, uh, Laredo Kid. This was kind of supposed to be Laredo Kid's coming-out party, but <laughs> the reality is he was in the ring with five of the most entertaining wrestlers in the world. And uh, he did a great job, not knocking them at all. But it's hard to stand out in that crowd. So uh, the one fun story, and I won't spoil it for you, but a play on the whole fire Festival debacle is the Young Bucks 
gear got quote unquote lost on its way to Daytona Beach. And Kenny Omega said, Don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, I'll find you new gear. And boy, did he ever. It was a nice uh, nod to the video game crowd that was there. And uh, they had a really fantastic match. I think that was my second or third favorite match of the night um, after Cody. And then the final match of the show was uh, what they call an unsanctioned match, which was the man formerly known as Dean Ambrose, who is now known as John Moxley, returning to his hardcore roots. For those of you that don't know, he was John Moxley on the independent circuit before signing with WWE, and he was a deathmatch king. Uh, he would get staples and thumbtacks, and he would get bloody and barbed wire. And since he left that circuit, Joey Janela. Uh, really took over for him. The bad boy, Joey Janela, became the king of the death match, at least here on the East Coast. And those two squared off in an unsanctioned death match. There was barbed wire and blood, and I won't tell you much about it. It's not really my thing, but the reality is to see John Moxley in an AEW ring in the main event, loved it. So overall, I think Fighter Fest was really good. I think that they still have some kinks to work out. I think um, they got to work on their production a little bit. They got to find a way to differentiate themselves from the WWE. I think they have to stop striking out on these pre-shows, which are just not working. They're not encouraging people to order the pay-per-view, in my opinion. They, they might have to make a sacrifice and put Kenny Omega or uh, the Young Bucks or Cody on a pre-show when it actually counts to, to really encourage people to watch it. Um, and I think the, the worst part is if the pre-show was just a half hour, and we got the three the three tag teams in the beginning tearing down the house and the little fire festival joke, and then they went into the pay per view. I think people would be like, "Oh, I want to see more." Uh, but in this instance, uh, more was less, and the second half hour I think actually turned a few people away, which is a shame. Um, the other article I had t- I had put up on ionryan.com when I was talking about AEW was their uh, exponential Instagram growth. Uh, they've garnered, I believe it was, almost 200,000 new likes since Double or Nothing five weeks ago, uh, which is more than every other wrestling company on the planet combined got in that same time. So people are catching on to AEW. Um, I also kind of predicted that maybe they weren't going to see much of a bump following Fighter Fest, and that turned out to be true, too. They they added less than 10,000 followers in the 48 hours following Fighter Fest. But that's all right. I think they're trending in the right direction. I think they're going to give away their uh, Fight for the Fallen show, which is the 13th of July. I think they're giving that away as well. That's a... You know, that's a show that benefits benefits the victims of gun violence in Florida, and I think that's awesome. So um, I also think what we're seeing with them is these littler shows, the ones that aren't double or nothing or all out or all in, which are really like their tent pole events. I think these smaller shows, we're getting a general inclination as to what the weekly television is going to be when they come to TNT in the fall. So, yeah, man, I'm all in on it. Still love AEW. I'm so proud to be you know, in on the ground floor. I flew out to Chicago two years ago now because uh, the elite were coming back to North America and I didn't know the the chance, the next chance I would get to see them. I flew out there by myself on a, on a cheap, crowded flight uh, to go see them and to go meet them. And here I am two years later talking about their television show that's going to be nationally broadcast here in America. So they've come a long way. I thought that it was going to be a fleeting thing, and it's not, and I'm real proud of that. Uh, The other thing, final part of um, three count here, 
number three, WWE. As you know, WWE is owned by Vince McMahon, the 70-something-year-old billionaire uh, who's been working out in New York, or more appropriately, Connecticut, for a long time. He changed the wrestling industry forever. But it's no secret, based on what I told you, that WWE is experiencing uh, some massive issues when it comes to their ratings. Now, they're insulated because they have a lot of contracts in place, so they're financially they're financially fine, and they're going to be for a long time. Unless, of course, their television uh, partners, who is a USA network, and in the fall it's going to be Fox, right? The same channel with The Simpsons and Family Guy and all those shows air on Fox. Uh, the NFL, uh, Major League Baseball, Fox is going to be airing WWE SmackDown Live on Friday nights. And uh, the problem is, I don't know how many people are going to watch it. Viewership is at an all-time low for WWE. Now, I had thought that maybe this would lead to Fox or USA or the stockholders, because it is a publicly traded company, kind of saying, Vince has got to go, right? I'm sorry, but if you listen to the John Moxley podcast, everything that's wrong with WWE right now, it sounds like it's a Vince McMahon problem and nothing else. And... Uh, Vince made a move this week. He brought in Eric Bischoff and Paul Heyman. They were his chief rivals and adversaries in real life 20 years ago. 20 years ago when WWF at the time was competing on Monday nights against WCW, it was Eric Bischoff who was holding that book. And for 83 weeks, I believe it was, WCW beat WWF. For 83 weeks, for almost two years, they had better ratings than them. And then the ultimate turning point, hilariously, was Eric Bischoff decided to um, try and screw Vince. And it was a taped WWE Raw, and uh, he decided to give away the spoilers. But the problem was the spoiler was that a guy named Mick Foley, a.k.a. Mankind, Cactus Jack, Dude Love, uh, Mick Foley was going to win the WWF title on the taped show. And so Eric Bischoff said, all right, well, let's screw WWF. And uh, he he had his announcers on their, their broadcast, WCW, say, oh, tonight over on WWF, don't even think about changing the channel. Mick Foley, mankind, is going to win their world title. Yeah, that's going to put some butts in the seats. Uh, and just as Eric uh, did not want and did not predict, Everyone in the world changed the channel and said, ooh, we want to see Mick Foley win the belt. <laughs> and he did. And that was really the end of that battle. WWF took off after that in the ratings. Uh, within a couple of years, it wasn't even competitive anymore. And a few months after that, WCW was closed. Uh, Paul Heyman is the genius behind ECW, which I've talked about. Philadelphia-based promotion. Uh, they ushered in the era of hardcore wrestling, of attitude, of, you know, WWF at one point was, oh, here's Brutus the Barber Beefcake. Here's Duke the Dumpster Drozzy. Here's IRS who does your taxes. Here's Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior who are basically superheroes. And Paul Heyman was like, and here's ECW, a dude that drinks beer and smokes cigarettes, and his name's the Sandman, and he's going to punch you in the face. And wrestling fans were like, ooh, I like that. And so that ushered in the the era of, of attitude, really. It was ECW that ushered that in. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of great documentaries out there about ECW's journey and about Paul Heyman's journey within ECW. And actually kind of found out that he was maybe a little bit on WWF's paper roll, uh, <laughs> payroll at that time. Uh, but 
yeah, long story short, Vince actually just hired those two guys to be the executive directors of his television programs. Um, now, in the past, there are things called like general managers, which is like fake decision makers on television. But by all accounts, they are the executive directors. They're truly going to run the creative behind Raw and SmackDown. Uh, Heyman's doing Raw, uh, Bischoff's doing SmackDown. And now I guess it'll be really interesting to see if the things that have kind of killed wrestling over the past decade as Vince McMahon has monopolized the art form, if um, Paul Heyman, who's really a creative genius, and Eric Bischoff, who has had some success, if they're able to turn things around. Uh, So that's it, guys. That's three count. Uh, It won't always be about wrestling. Uh, Just so happened there was two big stories for two different companies this week. Um, and I really look forward to doing that in the future. As I said, I have a cool intro being recorded for it right now. And uh, yeah, now it's time to talk about my friend Spider-Man. So what I want to focus on in this podcast is Spider-Man's live action history. Uh, and in order to tell that entire story, we have to go back to the mid-70s. It was during the mid-70s that Marvel Comics and Stan Lee uh, basically licensed Spider-Man to CBS. Uh, Now, the idea was that CBS was going to create mm, something. They didn't know if it was going to be a weekly television program, if it was going to be a miniseries, if it was going to be a one-time movie. Uh, And ultimately, what they decided on was that they would create a made-for-television movie. And uh, they did that, and they aired it on September 14th, 1977. Uh, It was a 90-minute movie, and basically it um, it was Peter's origin story. And uh, the story that they had told was uh, that there was a mysterious guru uh, who placed people under mind control. And the idea was that he was going to have them rob banks and commit suicide unless the city paid them $50 million. And that's when our hero, Peter Parker, swings in to stop him. And that was basically the first live-action Spider-Man that we got to see here in North America. They actually took the uh, this movie and released it in theaters worldwide, which was pretty cool. Um, and it turned out to be CBS's highest-rated show of the year, uh, which led them to say, you know what? In April of 1978, we're going to go ahead and we're going to move forward with a live-action Spider-Man uh, television show, weekly television show. Now, there was a couple of things that CBS executives were a little bit worried about. So first and foremost, despite the fact that the first Spider-Man movie, which aired on CBS for free on television, despite the fact that it had awesome ratings, the demographics were a little bit wonky. Uh, now, here's what I mean by that is the key demographic in all of film and media is the 18 to 49 demographic. You figure those are the adults, the young adults, the parents of children, uh, but really they are the people with money. (laughs) So that is the most coveted demographic in all of media, really still until this to this day. So the concern became if we're going to go ahead and we're going to produce a show, uh, live action Spider-Man, we're going to have to sell this to advertisers because the show was exceptionally expensive to produce, right? I mean, those Spider-Man effects aren't easy to do in 1977, 1978. And uh, CBS had their concerns. They wouldn't be able to sell it to advertisers because nobody from 18 to 49 was really watching it. Kids were watching it. It was a primetime special for children, uh, which is usually usually kids watch TV after school or on Saturday mornings, and that's by design, 
we cluster all that stuff together and we inundate them with advertising. And then, you know, from 7 p.m. to midnight is where we put the stuff for the adults. We put the car commercials on there. Uh, No kid that's 14 years old watching the Spider-Man TV show or movie on CBS is going to buy a car. And uh, that was a difficult pill for uh, CBS to swallow. They didn't know how to deal with that. How do you have a show that's a rating success, but not necessarily a big buy for advertising? So they kind of hedged their bets a little bit. And they said, season one, let's just do like five episodes, right? That's that's a good investment. Let's see what happens. Let's see how things even out. Now, kind of notoriously, Stan Lee, who was involved a little bit in production, looked at the whole thing and said like, is this made for kids? Like, what the heck, man? And he thought it was way too juvenile. And I just think that's so fascinating that the 18 to 49 demographic is not watching that 1977 version of Spider-Man. Because nowadays, in 2019, that's probably the main demographic. I'm 32 years old, and I guarantee you that the average age in the movie theater tonight is going to be between 25 and 35 uh, when I go to see, because I'm seeing Spider-Man tonight at midnight. So... They did the pilot, 90-minute pilot, and then they did five episodes, which aired from April through May of 1978. Uh, Now, while ratings remained very strong, uh, they were still having that key demographic problem, and they didn't really know how to proceed. Uh, Should they do a season two? It's rather costly to do these episodes. So uh, they turned to a producer from the $6 million man. I forget what his name is, Lionel something or other. And the idea was that they were going to go ahead and they were going to drop some of the more cartoonish and goofy things. And they were going to try and hone in and bring in a, you know, a new love interest for him and tone down his powers. So it was less, you know, whiz boink bang and more hard hitting. Uh, By the same token, with the cost associated with it, they didn't want to commit to too many more episodes, uh, meaning that they had a choice. Were they going to air these in September of 1978 and they were all going to be done in December? Um, Or were they going to take this kind of ratings powerhouse? It's not necessarily uh, an advertising um, juggernaut. Uh, Were they going to maybe spread them out? And that's exactly what they did. They aired two episodes in September, then I believe another episode in November, one in December, one in April, uh, one in May, and then two in July of, I guess it would be 79. Uh, So what was so interesting about that is that they kept those in their back pocket and they would intentionally counter a program. They would look at what ABC and NBC were producing and showing that night and said, you know what? Let's uh, let's show an episode of Spider-Man. And don't you know, it kind of worked <laughs> that the ratings were good, but there was a little bit of a problem developing for CBS. And this is ironic because this is a problem that a network would love to have nowadays. Uh, what network is this? The CW? Uh, that's like the superhero network. See, CBS was worried that they that's what they were going to become. Um, they had the Incredible Hulk at the time. They had revived uh, Wonder Woman, the Linda Carter version. Uh, they had shown the Captain America movie. Uh, they had also done a Doctor Strange movie, which until I researched this podcast, I didn't know that existed. Uh, and they just said, like, dude, we can't do this. We cannot be the superhero network. So ultimately, they decided after two seasons uh, for a combined 13, 14 episodes, they were going to cancel the live-action Spider-Man. 
One of the other things about the cancellation that kind of makes me laugh is CBS actually had cited what we now in 2019 call toxic fandom. Uh, See, the biggest proponents for the show, the biggest adult proponents for the show, the biggest fans of the show, really, uh, they wanted to see Spider-Man be more comic booky. And that whole season two, which was actually kind of more successful uh, with adults, it was not to the liking of really what we would call again in 2019 fanboys. So do you think in your head sometimes that toxic fandom only exists around uh, Game of Thrones or Star Wars? But here we are 40 years ago. (laughs) There was fanboys clamoring that Spider-Man wasn't Spider-Man-y enough. Now, uh, the show, uh, The Incredible Hulk, uh, which aired until 1982, uh, that still ran, obviously, for three years after after Spider-Man. And after Incredible Hulk left the air, they actually made, excuse me, <laughs> they made three more movies. Uh, and one of them in 1984 was rumored to be a reunion where it was going to be Spider-Man meets The Incredible Hulk. Uh, That did not happen, unfortunately. Just the window had closed. It just wasn't going to work out. Uh, But researching those three Incredible Hulk films, I'd actually kind of like to watch them. Uh, Now, when I talk about the Incredible Hulk, it's it's the Bill Bixby, uh, Bixby, uh, what is his name, Lou Ferrigno version of the Hulk. And like I said, they made three of them. And I think Thor is in one of them. I think Wilson Fisk as Kingpin is in another, as well as Daredevil's in that one. Uh, and then the final one, he falls in love with like a spy. Sounds a lot like Black Widow, kind of. But I actually really want to watch those three movies. I don't know if they would be tolerable. They were made in the late 80s. There's not going to be incredible CGI. And the fact that I don't hear much about those films leads me to believe that I'm not really missing out on anything. Uh, but yeah, I'm interested. So um, so what happened next to Spider-Man? With CBS having no use for live-action Spider-Man, Marvel actually began to option uh, the film rights to Spider-Man. And you would not believe who they were picked up by. They were picked up by Roger Corman. Now, uh, if that name doesn't invoke one uh, very specific thing, then you're probably not my age. You're probably not as nerdy as I am. But in 1994, Roger Corman would go on to produce, but not release, one of the worst adaptations of a comic book ever in the Fantastic Four. Uh, you got to look it up. If I if I can find it, I'll I'll post it on my Instagram page, uh, and or um, my web page. <laughs> but Corman wasn't all bad. Uh, as a matter of fact, he he helped launch the career of a lot of guys that we know now, from Fan- Francis Ford Coppola to. Uh, Ron Howard, Martin Scorsese, James Cameron, uh, some of the actors like Jack Nicholson. Uh, he, he gave breaks to these people. So Corman, for, uh, despite, despite the fact that he can't adapt a superhero movie all that well, uh, he has a great reputation in Hollywood as really being a pioneer in independent cinema. Uh, unfortunately, Corman did not keep the rights to the film. Well, maybe fortunately, he did not keep the rights to produce Spider-Man. They reverted back to Marvel. And Marvel turned to a now-defunct company called Canon Films. Uh, the two CEOs at, at Canon Films were like, yeah, man, we'll do Spider-Man. And they actually hired Toby Hooper, uh, who made Texas Chainsaw Massacre. 
But the problem was when they heard Spider-Man, they didn't think like Spider-Man, Spider-Man. They thought like Spider-Man, like Wolf-Man. Uh, and they actually had a script that was all pulled together uh, where basically Peter Parker is captured. And <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm laughing at this. Uh, Peter Parker is captured and he is forced to become a man spider tarantula. And he decides to not join the evil force of mutated animal people. And the Spider-Man uh, was going to go ahead and battle against these other creatures created by an evil scientist. And when Stan Lee heard about that, he was like, bro, no. <laughs> and he reached out to Canon Films and said, listen, he said, why don't we go ahead and rewrite this thing for you? And they did. And they actually came up with a story that I find to be relatively interesting. So here's the synopsis. Stan Lee wrote a, uh, a treatment. And then that treatment was given to two screenwriters by the name of Ted Newsome and John Brancato. Uh, so Newsome was a writer at the time. He later transitioned more into like directing. Apparently, he's done a couple documentaries on the history of like horror and sci-fi. Uh, Brancato has some dubious credits to his name. Um, well after the time that he wrote Spider-Man, or at least started to write Spider-Man, or tried to write Spider-Man, uh, he actually did Terminator Salvation. Um, and that other Terminator movie, the one that came before that, I think, Rise of the Machines. He also did The Game and The Net in the 90s. The Net, I believe, is that movie where Sandra Bullock is stuck in the internet before we understood what the internet was. Uh, Brancato's worst movie, though, had to be Catwoman. He wrote the Holly Berry version of Catwoman, uh, which is not very good. Uh, but the Spider-Man version that they did here wasn't bad. It was going to be an origin story, and it was going to focus on Doc Ock as Peter's mentor when Peter's in college. Um, and basically, there's an accident, and that creates Spider-Man, and it's what deforms Doc Ock into Doc Ock. Uh, then Doc Ock begins to search for what's called the Fifth Force, uh, which is a really cool name for something like in a superhero movie. So uh, the five forces that we know about, that scientists know about, are gravitational, electromagnetic, uh, strong nuclear, and weak nuclear. So um, this is a Fifth Force. And Doc Ock basically creates a machine that causes all sorts of electromagnetic anomalies and threatens to destroy everything in New York City. So uh, that was the story that they had come up with. And they actually got pretty far into production on this, the release pre-production. Uh, Toby Hooper had left at this point. Uh, they brought in a guy named Joe Zito, um, who he doesn't really have all that many interesting credits to his name. He did like Friday the 13th, the final chapter. Um, then they brought in a couple more writers. Uh, they did a guy, uh, what's his name? Barney Cohen, who he actually would go on to write like Sabrina, the teenage witch. And he put in some action sequences. He added another comic book villain. Um, and apparently the worst thing that he did, a non comic book villain, excuse me. Um, the worst thing that he did was he gave doc Ock the catchphrase of okie dokie, <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I mean that whole thing. That, I mean those changes aren't horrible. I don't know um, too much about the other villain that he added. I believe that the version of the script that I found that I'll be posting uh, doesn't have that in it anymore. Um, but yeah, they got pretty far into this. The whole thing, like Canon Films, uh, whatever that company is, 
they actually put $1.5 million into production and they really started to think about casting. Um, so the guy that they were thinking that they wanted to play Peter Parker um, was a guy named Scott Leva, who had actually played Spider-Man for a couple live appearances for Marvel. He was like a stuntman. He wanted to try and be an actor. And they did a few, I'm looking here at a few pictures of him, like dressed up in the Spider-Man outfit. And then they were thinking for Doc Ock that they were going to do Bob Hoskins. Uh, you guys may know him as, I believe he's Smee in Hook. And of course, I know him from one of my favorite movies of all time, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And you're never going to believe who they thought maybe was going to play J. Jonah Jameson. You want to take a guess? Stan Lee. <laughs> Stan Lee was going to play the role of J. Jonah Jameson for the Daily Bugle. So they put about $1.5 million in a pre-production. They were looking to uh, – they, they looked at a couple different studios. I forget where they were. Uh, Italy and England. And um, now at the time, superhero movies were a little bit risky. Uh, Superman 3 totally bombed. And this is before Batman kind of rekindled the country's obsession with superheroes. So Canon Films, after putting $1.5 million into pre-production, they found themselves in some financial troubles. Not necessarily because of Spider-Man, but Spider-Man surely wasn't helping. So Warner Brothers was like, all right, dude, here's $75 million for you guys to, like, get your act together. At which point they realized they couldn't drop another, like, $10 million into a Spider-Man movie. So they're like, "Mm, let's put this on the back burner for now. So that company, Canon Films, and its two CEOs, which is like uh, Golan and Globus, Globus, uh, they decided, ironically, to turn their attention towards Superman 4, Quest for Peace, which is pretty much one of the worst superhero movies ever made. Uh, in In that time, they had a deal with Marvel where I think it was a five year option. And it's unclear to me if it was uh, yearly payments or one total payment of about a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, But Canon Films accidentally forgot to pay uh, Marvel for that. And that was it. They lost the rights. Uh, It's not like Marvel called them up and said, like, hey, you owe us some money. They just took the rights right back. And that's where things start to get really disastrous. Uh, This company, Canon, was focused on... Uh, Superman, and they were focused on Masters of the Universe, but they really wanted to do Spider-Man. So they did find a way to get it back. But the problem is canon was bleeding money. Uh, So in 1989, this is now four years after the development of this script had started, uh, they were actually acquired by an Italian filmmaker, excuse me, an Italian financier. Um, And the guys that were behind canon went their own separate ways, and uh, Golan got to leave with some of the properties that they had acquired, including Spider-Man. Uh, he did that in lieu of a cash buyout. You know, instead of getting money, he said, well, I'll just take Spider-Man. And at that point, he kept up with his payments. He moved over to 20th Century Film, which I guess is 20th Century Fox, uh, or maybe an extension of that. But whatever the case is, he extended his option through 1992. Um So as the film went through all these different versions, all these different rewrites, people were brought in, people were brought out. The budget was cut to under $10 million at one point. Uh, This Golan guy was like, no, 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 no. We're going to do this right. 
1989 at the Cannes Film Festival, 20th Century announced that uh, they were starting the film in September. And at that point, they put ads in all like the programs uh, that had the writers' names on there. And at this point now, there was four official writers. <laughs> so the next step was securing a couple different rights. So they sold the rights to Viacom to air it on television. And they sold the rights uh, to Columbia to distribute the film when it came to home video. Uh, at this point, there was a new director, and it doesn't even really matter uh, <laughs> because Golan gave them the screenplay at Columbia, and they were like, uh, let's rewrite this again. We're now on like the fourth or fifth rewrite. And then they were like, okay, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Let's, uh, let's rewrite it again. And don't you know, at this point now, um, the whole thing's been rewritten about seven different times. And that's what you call production hell. I hate to say it. That's not a word I would typically use. But basically, this this guy, uh, Golan, and the different production teams he was working with, whether it was Canon or 21st or Columbia, they kept putting things in Variety, which is like where people involved in the world of movie making get their news from. And they said, we're starting 1988, October 1988. Didn't start. Missed that deadline. Uh, then they said, well, yeah, yeah, no, 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 no. Now we're going to probably start in like March of 89. Didn't happen. Missed that deadline. Uh, later, they ran an ad that said 1990, the year of Spider-Man. And uh, yeah, that obviously didn't happen either. And don't you know, 1991 comes and 1991 goes. And they also ran an ad in Variety that said, here it comes. It's coming. Uh, they don't mention any actors, but they took out a full-page ad that had a picture of Spider-Man in it. And um, that's the disaster. That is the production hell that Spider-Man experienced from uh, the late 70s when it, the show was canceled through the 80s. We're now through a decade. Ten years, Spider-Man's just been sitting on a shelf. And uh, we're wondering who in the world is possibly going to save this. Uh, well, it's a name that we're all familiar with. It's a name we talked about one of his movies, a couple of his movies earlier. How about a guy named uh, James Cameron? Hot on the heels of the success of Terminator and even True Lies, James Cameron was kind of the hottest thing in Hollywood at that time. And uh, he decided to rewrite the film. Uh, when he turned it in and Variety reported on it, uh, it included the names of all the aforementioned writers, really. Um and, uh, of course, the rumors began to swirl that Arnold Schwarzenegger, James Cameron's homeboy, would actually be playing Doc Ock. So um, the version that Cameron submitted was something called like a scriptment, if you will, which is like a script treatment, which was part storyline, uh, you know, and part screenplay. And, you know, you kind of go in between, like, this is what they're going to say, this is what they're going to do, so on and so forth. So uh, in this version, James Cameron decided that he was going to introduce two villains. Uh, it was going to be Sandman and it was going to be Electro. Uh, but a lot of what we knew about Sandman and Electro was not going to be the same. Uh, like, for example, um, Sandman's character, who, like, we kind of know is, like, Flint Marco, right? Like, he just changed his name to Boyd. His name's Boyd. <laughs> um and uh, the movie was actually going to end on top of the World Trade Center. Uh, Peter Parker was going to reveal his identity to Mary Jane Watson. Uh, and the movie, which was already pretty heavy on profanity, uh, was going to include a scene where uh, Spider-Man and Mary Jane uh, made Whoopi 
I'll hunt the Brooklyn Bridge. So for as interesting as that sounds, when the film was about to go into production, a big problem came up. And that was the fact that the studio, uh, when they were like, oh, James Cameron's going to direct Spider-Man. Yeah, just send him uh, the same template that we used for uh, his Terminator 2 contract. They failed to realize that he had full control over all credits in the film, all advertising, really full creative control, which wouldn't have been a problem except for the fact that he got to say who is credited as a producer and seemingly who is credited as a writer. And you have this long, like, daisy chain of all these different people that worked on the film, and that was going to be a big old problem. In particular, it was going to be a big problem with the producer, Golan, who really, when he left his studio buyout, he did so uh, with nothing more than the rights to Spider-Man in hand. And uh, that, of course, prompted a lawsuit. In addition to that, the company that uh, was going to go ahead and and release Spider-Man, they had no interest in working with Viacom and Columbia. And, of course, 20th Century Fox, uh, they believed that Cameron couldn't make this movie because they had an exclusivity deal with him under another contract. So in the midst of all of this uh, suing and litigation and whatnot, a couple things started to happen. Uh, 21st Century, that was the company that Golan moved to after he uh, sold his previous company. They began to go bankrupt, and they turned to MGM, who acquired them, and at which point MGM said, okay, well, now we own the rights to Spider-Man. At the same time, Marvel uh, had filed for bankruptcy, and they reorganized, actually merging with Toy Biz. Um, And when they came out the other end of that, uh, as this Cameron project had really just completely fallen apart uh, between all of these different lawsuits, uh, there was some debate as to how as to who owned Spider-Man now. Was it MGM who bought 21st Century because they had because Go- 21st Century had Golan and Golan had the rights to Spider-Man? And the courts decided that while MGM does own the script that was produced by. Uh, all these different writers, James Cameron, Ted Newsom, John Bercata, Golan, John Michael Paul, Ian Wiley, Leslie Stevens, uh, Frank Lagoja, Neil Rutenberg, Barney Cohen. These are all the Shepard Goldman. These are all the different guys whose names are on the script. MGM owns that script in theory, but they no longer own the rights to make a Spider-Man movie. Um, so Marvel turned around and said, well, we can make a pretty penny. And they went and they sold the rights exclusively to Columbia, who, you know, is Sony Pictures. So after all this time, after 20-some years of this movie going back and forth, it simply never gets made. Uh, But now all of a sudden there's a new problem. See, um, MGM now is staking a claim to Spider-Man. And Sony is staking a claim to Spider-Man. Both of it makes sense. Marvel just sold the rights to Sony. And MGM bought up all the smaller studios that once owned the Spider-Man rights. So who actually owns the rights to Spider-Man in the late 90s? Uh, That's a question that um, we didn't have to to wonder about for too long. See, uh, there was an additional problem going on behind the scenes. One of MGM's most reliable film franchises since the dawn of time, practically, was James Bond. Uh, Now, the problem with that is that there was a James Bond parody called Casino Royale, and that was actually made at Sony years ago. And Sony, in search of a film franchise that they can hitch their wagon to, decided, you know what, man? We're going to make 007 movies. 
See, the way that they did this is, uh, of course, Ian Fleming was the guy that made James Bond. Um, but apparently, Thunderball, which was a novel, a James Bond novel, uh, a gentleman named Mr. McClory had the rights to actually turn that into a film uh, exclusively. And Sony called him and said, hey, you have the rights to make that into a movie? All right, man, let's do it. And all of a sudden, the prospect of there being two James Bond movies out uh, became a reality. And at the same time, MGM kind of turned around to Sony saying, listen, you're going to impede on James Bond? Well, we're going to make a Spider-Man 2. Well, Spider-Man as well. (laughs) And at that point, both of them kind of balked and threw a whole bunch of lawsuits. Surprise, Spider-Man lawsuits. Um, Sony relinquished its rights to the idea of making a James Bond movie. And MGM relinquished relinquished their rights to making a Spider-Man movie. And there you have it. After 20-some years of trying to get a live-action Spider-Man movie into theaters, Spider-Man had found his home, Sony Pictures. All right, so there we are. We finally made it to 1999. Guys, when I set out to do this podcast, I was like, oh, I know the past 20 years of Spider-Man history. I'm just going to quickly tell it uh, from my memory because I know it because I was alive in 1999, you know? Little did I know that there was a 23-year story that came before all of that. So uh, that last half hour, I was back and forth reading articles, learning more stuff, finding out about all of this crazy stuff. So yeah, I mean, 23 years in short, is uh, it was a lot to, to deal with all that. So uh, I've had to take like four breaks throughout this, and my phone kept ringing for work, but I'm back, guys. <laughs> um, For you, it's just a second. For me, it was like an hour of like walking away and pulling out my hair, being like, oh my goodness gracious, I'm going to have to edit this so much because of of how much information I had to keep looking up to make sure that I was getting this story right. And then there was all this conflicting information and Variety had stuff wrong and Wikipedia had stuff wrong and uh, all right, we got got through it. So guys, now Spider-Man is at Sony. And that's the Tobey Maguire movie that we all eventually uh, yeah, get to watch, right? So when it came to uh, – when they got that whole James Bond, Spider-Man thing worked out between MGM and uh, Sony, uh, Sony was like, we got to get on this, man. Like X-Men just made $120 million. Like superheroes are back in full effect. Like let, let's go ahead and let's do this. So um, I'm going to go through this part a little bit quick, a lot from memory. Uh, and that way this thing can get to Greg in a timely fashion. Uh, sorry about the uh, delay on this one, Greg. So here's the deal, guys. Uh, when it got to Sony, they were like, all right, who are we going to get to direct this? Right. And they threw out a couple of couple of different names. Like uh, one of the really interesting ones was like M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, they were looking at, uh, what's his name? David Fincher. And Fincher was like, I'm not doing an origin story, man. Like, no way. Like, let's do like the death of Gwen Stacy. And he wanted to kind of dive in right there. And Sony's like, nah, we need an origin story. And, you know, we have this script and let's do it. Uh, Fincher said, no, thanks. So Sony actually eventually turned to Sam Raimi. That's the guy who eventually directed the movie. And Raimi is an awesome guy. He did Evil Dead and uh, that whole franchise. And um, he was a big comic book fan. So Sony knew that they had someone that they could really trust. Now, what they needed to come up with next was who was going to be their Spider-Man. 
And Toby Maguire was a name that was thought of from the very beginning because they wanted someone who could kind of conceivably play high school, but wasn't necessarily like who was big in the late 90s, like Jonathan Taylor Thomas. I guess that's actually probably the years are off there, but they needed someone who could play serious. They needed someone who they could rely on. And they didn't really like Maguire at first for the role. Uh, but when he came and actually did the screen tests, which he was even reluctant to do the screen tests, like, do I really want to be Spider-Man? Um, he came and he was kind of jacked and they were like, huh, this actually works, man. So there it was, they had the direct, they had their director in uh, Sam Raimi and they had their Tobey Maguire. Uh, next thing was like really figuring out the script and they looked at the camera and stuff and they still had like Sandman and Electro and all that and like, nah, 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 let's go ahead and let's do Doc Ock and Green Goblin instead, right? That's going to be a way better story. And then Sam Raimi kind of stepped in and said, listen, we can't tell three origin stories in this movie. Let's just go with, with you know, Norman Osborn and Peter Parker. Let's tell that story and maybe we'll get around to Doc Ock later, which was really a great decision. So uh, Spider-Man went into production. It was actually a little bit like it was a year behind, I think, actually. It was supposed to come out, I think, in November of 2001. Uh, It didn't actually end up hitting theaters until May 2002. Now, I just want to rewind for a second here uh, to June 2001. It was when the first Spider-Man teaser trailer came out. Now, what's so interesting about that is it none of that stuff ended up in the movie, and I don't think it was ever going to end up in the movie. It was just a teaser trailer. So it was like this three-minute bank heist, and you didn't really see Spider-Man for most of it. And the criminals rob the bank, and they escape, and they get into a helicopter, and then something starts happening in the helicopter, and all of a sudden they get pulled into a big web, and the web is between the uh, two towers, the twin towers, the world trade centers up in New York. And it was really a beautiful image, but this is before nine 11. Uh, the trailer ended with Spider-Man and it was like, Oh cool. Spider-Man's coming. Uh, but when nine 11 happened, they had to pull that trailer immediately because that was a really gut wrenching time. Uh, now just something, I guess a little bit, interesting, a side note about how 9-11 kind of actually ended up affecting the Spider-Man universe a little bit. Uh, Later on, we'll get into that, is there was a movie coming out also called Donnie Darko, and it was set for a Halloween release in 2001. And if you've ever seen Donnie Darko, you know that it was Jake Gyllenhaal's breakout role, and it really went on to become a cult classic because of its uh, really kind of confusing but enjoyable story. Uh, But one of the central themes early on in the film is there's a plane crash. And all advertising for Donnie Darko after 9-11 in 2001 was a big, big, big no-go. So the movie came out, and despite the fact that it was a critical success, uh, it was not a commercial success because nobody really saw a trailer for it because they pulled a lot of the advertising for that film. Uh, So we'll get back into that later, but... Yeah, Jake Gyllenhaal was having his breakout moment right around the time that Spider-Man finally came out in uh, theaters. 
So the movie was released in early May of 2002, and it was the first movie to do something that no one thought could ever be done, and that was crossing $100 million in its opening weekend. I believe, and like I said, I'm doing all this from memory now, it made $112 million, maybe $120 million in its opening weekend. First movie to ever do that. It was a box office hit. Uh, It did relatively well with critics, and the word of mouth was absolutely fantastic. Uh, Prior to that, the highest opening of all time was Harry Potter, which I believe had uh, $90 million, maybe $80 million, maybe $89 million, somewhere in that range. And uh, yeah, immediately there was talk of a sequel. What in the world were we going to do for a sequel? Only a few days after its release, Sam Raimi basically started to meet with new writers, and they started to sift through a couple different ideas. Uh, at one point, uh, they almost confirmed rather immediately that Doc Ock was going to be the dude. Uh, but an early script had Doc Ock being like Peter's age, and he was actually going to be the doctor that created the spider that made Spider-Man Spider-Man that made Peter Parker Spider-Man. Uh, and the whole idea was going to be that Doc Ock was in love with Mary Jane and, uh, that he was working on the octopus tentacles and, uh, yeah, it was going to be really weird, but I think kind of the climactic moment in the film was going to be that he was going to offer Peter a, uh, vaccine, really a antidote for his curse, if you will, of being Spider-Man. And, uh, you know, was Peter going to take it or not? Uh, They opted against that. They kind of just thought that the love triangle thing was a little bit silly. Uh, There was also a plot point in there where Harry uh, decided to put a $10 million bounty on Spider-Man's head. Uh, This was an early script for Spider-Man 2. And the idea was that all of New York was going to turn on Spider-Man and they were going to be like trying to attack him. And it was going to kind of be Spider-Man versus the world. Uh, He was going to do that in conjunction with the Daily Bugle. Uh, Ultimately, they decided kind of against that. Um, Obviously, Harry still has animosity towards Peter uh, throughout the trilogy, but that storyline was was cut. Uh, Sam Raimi felt as though it was a little bit um, unsubtle, if you will. So... Production, pre-production started like right after Spider-Man 1 and uh, went through a couple different things, actually filmed in New, excuse me, in Chicago in November. I mean, the movie was released in May and the following November, they're already filming more. And the idea was they were going to start principal photography on the film in April of 2003. So uh, in March of 2003, Sony officially announced the film. Uh, They announced its release date, and they said it would be out in 2004, the following summer, which is a really impressive turnaround when you consider the fact that it took them 20-some years to bring him to the big screen. And uh, now they're going to do two movies within, you know, What's that math? 24 months of each other. Uh, But there was a little bit of a problem. And this is one of those really fun rumors that I flipped out over. And it's why I mentioned the Donnie Darko thing. Uh, So Donnie Darko, which starred Jake Gyllenhaal, did not do well at the movie theater. But when it came out on DVD, uh, it actually had some really cool features on the DVD. And this is just after PlayStation 2 was released, right? So Everybody now had a DVD player. I know you're probably laughing about that, but a lot of people didn't have. They were still on VHS until the time that 
PlayStation 2 came out and gave everybody a DVD player. And so Donnie Darko had all like these cool little things about time travel and these little Easter eggs, and you could click over here. And it really became a cult phenomenon, Donnie Darko did. And uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, everybody thought he was pretty darn cool. And don't you know, on March 31st of 2003, a massive rumor broke out in Hollywood. And that was that Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man, had injured his back uh, in the film Seabiscuit. And he was not going to be ready to play Spider-Man. And he would be replaced by none other than Jake Gyllenhaal because Sony didn't want to push back the start date and they didn't want to push back the release date. So uh, that is a story that lasted. It was a rumor that persisted until April when they actually got to filming and Tobey Maguire was there. But we almost lived in a world where Jake Gyllenhaal became Spider-Man. And I absolutely love that little caveat and that little story now that Jake Gyllenhaal is in Spider-Man. And uh, yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about Far From Home towards the end of this podcast. So um, Spider-Man 2 came out and it did even better than Spider-Man 1. Um, There's actually a funny little thing in there before we get away from the back thing that uh, obviously in the movie in Spider-Man 2, he gives up his powers briefly and then he comes back and at one point he says something like, I'm back, I'm back, ah, my back. Uh, And that's a little bit of a joke towards the whole Tobey Maguire's not coming back because of the Seabiscuit thing. So um, Spider-Man 2 at the time was considered really probably the best superhero movie to date. Uh, People loved how Doc Ock was portrayed with an element of like humanity. Um, The graphics in the film were like kind of truly fantastic. And uh, yeah, that's Spider-Man 2, a massive success. Now, uh, the issue with the Spider-Man franchise starts to creep up around Spider-Man 3. Sony knew that Spider-Man 2 was going to be a hit. So before the movie even came out, they actually started pre-production on it and they started to write it. Uh, So they gave the writer a big old contract and they said, listen, man, here's the deal. You're going to write this movie, here's big money, and uh, if it's good, you're going to write us a fourth one. Uh, So at the same time, Sam Raimi, who really had made Spider-Man his own through two critically and commercially successful Spider-Man films, he was kind of working on his concepts of what he really wanted Spider-Man to be this time around. Um, There was ideas to bring in Vulture, Ben Kingsley was in talks for that, but ultimately he decided on, like, you know what, I'm going to do the Sandman. And what's going to make the Sandman so interesting is that I'm actually going to have him be the man that kills Uncle Ben. And um, I really want I really want to juxtapose the Sandman's view of the events versus Peter's. Obviously, that's a defining moment for Peter. And for Sandman, it was just going to kind of be like a moment. And that, that was probably a pretty interesting story. Uh, so at the same time, Sam Raimi started to get a little bit of pressure. Uh, At this point now, he had done The Green Goblin. He had done uh, Doc Ock. He's avoided some of the other big characters in the Spider-Man lore. He didn't include Black Cat, who was a staple of uh, comic books in the 90s. And he did not include Venom. And Raimi didn't want to do it. He said Venom was just kind of too ridiculous. He was too over the top. He lacked humanity. It just would have taken his movies in a different direction. But Marvel said, well, you know, these movies aren't about you. They're about the fans. And the fans really want to see Venom. So uh, there you are. We're at Sandman, Venom. There's talk of Vulture. 
and the screenwriter starts to struggle a lot. The movie kind of starts to get bloated. They add in Gwen Stacy, and he's thinking in his head, uh, the screenwriter, like, listen, maybe we should just, like, cut this into two movies, like Spider-Man 3 and Spider-Man, you know, 3.5 or 2.5 and 3. Uh, but as he tried to write the script, he couldn't really find a moment that says, like, ah, yes, this is, like, a good middle ground. This is a good place to break up the films. So instead, he just tried to juggle everything, and really, it, it played out on screen. While the movie went on to become the most successful Spider-Man movie of uh, that trilogy, a lot of it was just based on the hype of you know it being the third movie in the trilogy. Uh, critics were actually rather kind to it, but Sam Raimi would go on to say, and this is a quote, it was awful. Uh, the guys in Marvel kind of later apologized, saying, like, man, we really shouldn't have pushed Sam into the direction of using Venom, because that's when the movie kind of starts to fall apart. Uh, if you have seen Spider-Man 3, which I don't know if I should say, I hope you do, I hope that you did, or that you should, but, like, there's this whole scene of, like, Peter, like, singing and dancing and being emo and weird, and I, I can't even begin to describe it. Um, it was bad. It was the first movie that like I hated. <laughs> I saw it at midnight and I was just like, I hate this movie. It was really the first movie. Mm, I'm trying to think. Cause I think this was released in 2007. I guess the matrix prequels were prior to that. Cause I hated the matrix uh, sequels, excuse me, hated them. Um, but yeah, the movie just did not do well. Uh, even still, guess what? They had plans to do Spider-Man 4 and 5. But this wasn't all bad news. See, Sam Raimi was just as disappointed as anybody with Spider-Man 3, and he really wanted to uh, right the ship. So he hooked up with the guy that wrote Zodiac, whose name is James Vanderbilt, I believe. And in 2008, they got to work. They said, we're doing it. And they wrote a film that was so long, uh, they said, okay, this we have to break up into two stories. And... Based on some actual recent script leaks, uh, it actually looks like that they were going to cast John Malkovich in the role of Vulture, and they were going to cast Anne Hathaway, a little bit ironically, considering the fact that a few years later she would be playing Catwoman, uh, in uh, a role that would be Black Cat, with the big twist being that she actually becomes the female version of Vulture. And I could kind of see how that would play out, that... The entire movie, they're worried about John Malkovich, and you're looking at John Malkovich being like, oh my gosh, he's going to make an awesome vulture. And you're looking at Anne Hathaway and being like, oh my God, she's going to make an awesome Felicia, right? She's going to make an awesome black cat. Then at the end of the movie, when you think he's about to become vulture, she becomes vulture, right? That'd be a good cliffhanger. That's what the Spider-Man 3 author struggled with. He couldn't come up with a nice way to break the films into two, uh, but that'd be a cliffhanger, man. That would, that would be pretty good. So uh, he turned in the script, actually. They both turned in the script in 2008. Unfortunately, Sam Raimi was also just really tired. He had, uh, we're going on 10 years now of making nothing but Spider-Man movies. And when the studio started to ask some questions and say, well, why don't we try this? Or why don't we try that? Sam Raimi was just kind of like, listen, you know what, man? I think I'm done. And uh, what's interesting about that is Sony must have kind of been feeling that coming because shortly after they announced the entire cancellation of Spider-Man 4 in 2010, 
uh, they pretty much immediately announced that they were doing like a gritty reboot, which was very much so a reaction to The Dark Knight, right? Everybody was going dark after The Dark Knight, uh, which was the ultimate gritty reboot of a character with the Joker. Um, also around the same time, it should be noted that they were they decided that they were going to do more of a uh, of the Lord of the Rings films, right? They were going to do The Hobbit. And Sam Raimi was actually the front runner of that. And for a while, Tobey Maguire was in talks to be Bilbo Baggins. At least that was a rumor. Obviously, that did not come to pass, but the Spider-Man reboot did. Uh, directed by Mark Webb, starring Andrew Garfield, hot off the heels of The Social Network. Um, the Amazing Spider-Man was actually okay. It wasn't all that bad. Um, they reinvented the character in a way that felt unique to to that universe. Uh, I believe the reviews were relatively good financially. Eh, it did, did pretty decent. And of course, Sony was like, all right, man, you know, we successfully rebooted this thing. It was a little five-year gap between the movies, but we're back. We got Andrew Garfield. Everything's going to be great. Except for the fact that it wasn't. And the biggest problem that started to occur uh, was that Andrew Garfield maybe didn't see eye to eye with Sony. As a matter of fact, when the Sony hack happened, if you, if you remember that whole incident, uh, James Franco, Spider-Man alum, and Seth Rogen had done a movie called like The Interview. And I believe it was about the assassination of one of the North Korean dictators. I can't remember if it was the guy that actually had died or the guy that's still in charge now. Um, but whatever the case is, uh, that created a whole bunch of controversy and Sony was actually like violently hacked and a lot of their stuff was leaked. And one of the things that was leaked was Sony's opinions on Andrew Garfield. Uh, apparently they were supposed to announce Spider-Man three and Garfield didn't show up. Uh, now I'm having actually a difficult time finding the exact quote right now, but I remember reading the whole thing in disbelief when I was sitting in Disney world as all this stuff hit like four or five years ago. Now, now, what's really interesting, what came out of those emails, was the fact that they really didn't like Andrew Garfield uh, anymore, and they were actually already started to consider teaming up with Marvel. Uh, they were planning what they were calling a Spidey Summit that January to see what they would do with the direction of the character. And as we know, you know that eventually led to Tom Holland uh, replacing Andrew Garfield and then basically rebooting the franchise. Now, some other things that were interesting from the Sony leak is that they were planning on doing a Sinister Six film, and the idea was going to be at least one of the ideas that was thrown around, and this was, you know, the chairperson at the studio coming up with this, not necessarily a screenwriter, was that Spider-Man would have the black suit, and he'd be facing carnage, and he couldn't beat him, so he would turn to the Sinister Six for help. Uh, there was also rumors, of course, that they were going to go after uh, Channing Tatum to play Venom. Uh, in addition to that, there's this cast list. Let me see if I can pull it up real quick. So this was Sony's dream list for the Sinister Six. They thought that Doc Ock should be played by one of the following actors. Sean Penn, Denzel Washington, George Clooney, Daniel Craig, Colin Firth, or maybe they would use him as the Vulture, Matthew McConaughey. Uh, Channing Tatum, if he didn't work out as Venom, Will Smith, Ryan Gosling, and Matt Damon. Those were all the names that were mentioned for Doc Ock. Uh, for Sandman, they also mentioned Channing Tatum, Woody Harrelson, Tom Hardy, 
Jared Leto. Um, he also, they also had this idea that Jared Leto could also play Felicia Hardy, the black cat. Don't know how they would have done that. Uh, Jonah Hill was in consideration for Sandman. Sasha Baron Cohen, who we all know is uh, Borat. Javier Bardem, who was masterful in the film uh, uh, No Country for Old Men. Uh, they also threw out Seth Rogen's name and Danny McBride. They also mentioned a couple other people like Idris Elba and Jackie Chan saying, uh, and Brian Cranston. Like, we'll just get them and put them in whatever role. So, uh, yeah, after the Sony hack, I think Sony had um, a lot of egg on their face. And it was at that point that they decided, like, okay, there was already rumors circulating. The Sony hack confirmed it that Marvel wants Spider-Man for uh, Civil War, right? So they worked it out. And don't you know, Tom Holland got cast as Spider-Man, and that really kind of puts us where we're at today. Um, guys, I'd really love to continue on this podcast, but like I said, due to the insane amount of research that I had to do for um, uh, those first 23 years of the Spider-Man history, uh, I am not going to be able to talk too much more about the production history of Spider-Man. So what I want to do in the closing minutes here is I want to get into Far From Home and what I'm most excited about and what I foresee happening uh, in the film. Now, I want to note that I have not listened to Greg and Sam talk about this yet. I've read no reviews and no spoilers. So, a lot of the stuff I say could be dead wrong. You may have already seen the movie and been like, dude, you're so wrong. But as we see in the trailer, Jake Gyllenhaal is there as Mysterio and he's painted as a good guy. Uh, spoiler alert, that's probably not true. Uh, but the most interesting word that's dropped in there is <laughs> multiverse. Right, We just are off the heels of Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, and that film made about $400 million, $500 million bucks, which is pretty darn good for an animated film, and uh, people truly love it. It just hit Netflix. If for some reason you haven't seen that, I can't recommend it enough. So to me, based on the previews, that's pretty much the most important thing that we've learned. See, the whole idea of the multiverse, especially as people's contracts are expiring in the MCU, is it can open up the door to some different versions of the characters we know. You know, there's like a Lady Loki. There's a female version of Thor. Uh, and of course, most importantly, there's so many versions of Spider-Man, right? Uh, I would love to see a live-action Spider-Verse. I've seen some headlines recently. I did not read the articles because I didn't want to spoil it for myself. Uh, but Tom Holland said, like, hey, man, I'd be open to, like, Tobey Maguire getting involved and Andrew Garfield getting involved, and let's do a Spider-Verse movie. You know, let's see Miles Morales, uh, a live-action version of Miles Morales. In addition to that, if you've read the Spider-Verse comic books, there's so many cool spiders. Uh, it looks like we see some version of, like, a Spider-Man noir kind of thing. Um, obviously not that, not that character from the multiverse, but a costume like that we see in far from home. And, uh, yeah, I really look forward to what the multiverse can do. I think that can open up a lot of, uh, possibilities down the line. It's really probably one of the most game changing things in the history of the MCU. It's once you start getting into like parallel universes, it also, God forbid, could be the beginning of the end of the MCU. You know, we could really kind of start getting out into into no man's land here of some really weird things happening. And while Marvel has yet to fail, uh, they 
they could struggle. So we'll, we'll see. But the multiverse is pretty much the most interesting thing. I wonder if it's going to open up the door to many other Spider-Men or if it's going to open up the door to um, alternate versions of the heroes that we know. Um, so the one thing I was so excited to talk about that I have to rush through here, unfortunately, and this this now I learned my lesson for not recording on Mondays. Um, what happens next? Right. Uh, so I want to make like a little bit of a prediction for Spider-Man. Uh, we see Spider-Man swinging through New York, presumably at the beginning of the film. We see that in the trailer and we see like Avengers Tower in the background. Uh, me personally and my friend Mike Caulfield, Mike, if you're listening, uh, I hope you appreciate the credit. We fantasized about the idea of Peter getting back from Europe at the end of the film, swing around New York saying like, man, I really miss New York. And he swings past uh, the old Avengers Tower, and he swings past just in time to see a four being put on there. And that becomes the first teaser that we're going to get a reboot of the Fantastic Four, and they're going to come to the MCU. Um, a version that my buddy Mike had come up with was basically that Peter gets a letter for, you know, now that your Stark internship or, or you know, your Stark internship has been inherited uh, by, you know, this corporation come to this building it's old avengers tower when he gets there boom it's the fantastic four you don't have to show any of the characters you don't have to do any casting just that four would be awesome um in addition to that some other things that are kind of going around is that they might want to somehow bring together spider-man and venom uh that's a multiverse thing in my opinion um you can do that little parallel universe opens up and you got the 34 year old Tom Hardy or however old he's supposed to be in the movies as Venom uh, teaming up with or going against our Spider-Man. Uh, the thing that I'm most interested in, and I think this probably doesn't have a great chance of happening, but if anybody can pull it off, it's Marvel. And that's the fact that they now own Deadpool. I would love to see in Spider-Man 3 him team up with Deadpool. Uh, now, a lot of people are going to say, well, Rye, how are you going to do an R-rated superhero with a PG-13 Spider-Man. And to me, I think it would actually be hilarious if, you know, Aunt May walks in on Spider-Man and uh, Deadpool talking and Deadpool goes to curse and Aunt May's like, yo, you can't curse in front of this kid. And uh, the whole rest of the movie is Deadpool instead of dropping F-bombs saying things like fiddlesticks. You know, I think that would be think that'd be really, really, really neat. I, I would absolutely enjoy that. So while I don't have any official predictions for Spider-Man uh, for the film tonight or for the future of the franchise, I would really like to see them introduce the Fantastic Four in one of the post credit sequences or drop a hint that, you know, Venom or Deadpool is coming. But knowing Marvel, they're actually probably just going to set up their other movies. Um, I don't know their official release dates on these things. I guess we'll find out with San Diego Comic-Con coming up rather soon. Uh, we're going to start to find out some of the release dates of you know Guardians 3 and the solo Black Widow film and really what else they have planned. Obviously, they're going to do a third Spider-Man. We don't know if that will be in two years or five years or what they're going to tell in between. Are they going to do some sort of new Avengers thing or uh, or what? But I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, every Spider-Man movie, honestly, other than Spider-Man 3, I've enjoyed. Uh, these movies have been some of the most successful films in the history of cinema. Uh, here's an interesting statistic. is They've released six live-action Spider-Man movies so far. Uh, the only film franchise in the world that has released 
six live action movies that has made more than $700 million has been Lord of the Rings and Spider-Man, right? Not every, not every Harry Potter film, if you include the other, you know, crimes of Grindelwald and stuff or whatever. Uh, not all those movies, not all the Star Wars movies, not all the MCU movies, um, not all of them have made $700 million. So in a lot of ways, when you include in Civil War and when you include uh, the Avengers movies, Spider-Man is really one of the most profitable superheroes ever. And that's why, you know, there was a 20-some year legal battle to bring him to the screen. And I think Tom Holland does a fantastic job in the role of Peter Parker. And I'm looking so forward to Spider-Man Far From Home. Um, I did not announce a contest winner here. Uh, I have those, like, cool Spider-Man bags. Uh, I'll reach out to you guys on Instagram. Uh, and if you want one, I have a couple. Um, I'll pick someone and, you know, the first person to reach out to me and say they really want one, I'll give it to them. But like I said, I'm coming up on 9 p.m. here. I had actually, I was listening to the podcast to edit it, and I fell asleep. I've been burning the candle at both ends. Uh, with work and whatnot. So I said, I got to get this edited, got to get it over to uh, Greg. And my movie starts in three hours. So I'll be back in two weeks with a preview of San Diego Comic-Con and what to expect. And if it all works out, instead of me sitting here talking ad nauseum, um, I will actually have a friend with me. So yeah. Uh, I will talk to you guys in two weeks. For now, be great, be grateful. Check out We Podcast and We Know Things later on this week. And MRC Tech presents the last podcast a week from today. Mm-hmm.